Good morning. Hey, thanks for leading us um, this morning, you guys. And um, I just, I'm going to say it again. Um, just, Tyler, thanks for leading us. Great voice, but particularly this morning, you just look really sharp in that shirt. And so, look at, yeah, no, no. <clears throat> it's the same shirt. <clears throat> My name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor. It's, it's really good to, to worship with you this morning and to be here. And, um, I uh, want to give you a quick update. We uh, um, last uh, last Sunday night was a was a great uh, night for us as a church. Back in December, uh, we did a family meeting December fifteenth, uh, right after this gathering. Uh, and one of the things that we talked about there was heading into twenty twenty uh, and the vision that God's leading us into. And, and that on uh, Sunday evening, uh, January nineteenth, uh, was we were just kind of opening it to anyone who's leading in any way and anybody that wanted to come and. Uh, and check it out. And so there's a little over 100 of us there that just really talked about where God was leading us as a church. And uh, so if you weren't able to be there, um, a number of us left making a commitment to just share what we're excited about uh, in, in the vision that God's leading us into. So maybe you'll hear from a friend here at Mosaic. Uh, if, you're, if you haven't heard, feel free to ask and, and, and chat with any, anyone who's leading in any way. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is, if I can ask you to put on, uh, on your calendar, March 15th in the evening. So Sunday, March 15th in the evening, we're going to uh, gather again uh, for a time of just talking about where God's leading us as a church uh, to pray and to worship together. And so more information will come uh, in the coming weeks. I know that's, I don't know what that is, like six, seven, seven weeks out or so. And so more info will be on the way, but just want to have you put that on your radar. I'm really excited for where God's leading us. And part of where he is leading us actually has to do with, with the series that we're in, this teaching series, as we gather every Sunday and take time to open up scripture together. Uh, as we start into this, this new year, uh, God's led us to focus on the heart. Uh, and so we've called it the heart where Jesus begins his revolution. There's a lot of different aspects of our life that, that uh, Jesus speaks into. In fact, all of them um, and so how we interact with others, how we behave, uh, the things that we say, uh, every part of who we are. And yet uh, it's, it's the very core of who we are at our, our heart that, that God's actually most concerned with. Uh, and so we want to start there. It's where Jesus begins uh, to transform us, to heal us, to change us. And then it works its way out. And um, so... This is part of where God's leading us is to focus on the heart uh, these first couple months of the new year. So that's what we're doing. So I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me, and then we're going to open up Scripture together and continue on focusing on the heart. So would you pray with me? God, we're here with you this morning, and uh, we're glad that you've, you've called us into this place that we get to, get to sing and to uh, be with one another, to open up your word, to pray, to laugh, to interact, to to be with you. And so in this place at this time, God, we acknowledge and declare that you are the one true living God of all power, of all grace, of all truth, that you have created us in this world that we exist in. And so we just, we worship you and acknowledge you here in this place and in our very hearts and our minds this morning. Holy Spirit, would you move and work in this time, but not just in this time, would you actually change us? Would you be prompting us and prodding us and convicting us and comforting us and working not just to keep our minds alert and awake, but to go a level deeper into our hearts and to, and to change, change us. Would you have that freedom in this space this morning? And Jesus, we worship you in this place. We seek to follow you and be more like you. You are our Lord and our Savior and our King. And would you guide and direct us as we look into your word? 
In your name we pray, amen. Uh, this week I had a friend who uh, drove a couple hours into, into town, into Portland. He lives uh, about two hours away. He lives in a town, he told me, of about uh, 11,000. I couldn't have told you that before this week, but he says he lives in a town of about 11,000. And I uh, drove into Portland. We had scheduled to have lunch, and I don't know how you do this. I, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a disability or just kind of an unconscious commitment. I rarely ever decide where I'm going to lunch until I'm in the moment. And so he shows up, and, and uh, I said, hey, where do you want to go to lunch? And he says, I don't care. I said, okay, darn it. Um, I, I don't know. I'm a little overwhelmed by our lunch options in, in Portland. And so I turned to uh, a couple of folks that were in the office. and I was like, hey, uh, we're going out to lunch. Any, any suggestions? And we start to talk. And then all of a sudden he says, actually, you know what? You know what I'd love? I'd love Vietnamese food. Can I get, yeah. So does somebody else. So, um, and I told him, I said, so, so I turned and said, okay, well, great. What's, what's the best Vietnamese place? And so we, you know, came up with the, the best two and one was closed because of renovations. And then so we went to number two and had a great Vietnamese meal for lunch. I said to him as we're leaving and getting in the car, I said, hey, we're in this series on the heart. And uh, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going I'm to use you this, this Sunday because I, I think a lot of us actually function like he did in that moment. What is it, what is it that you want? I'm good with whatever. But then to take a moment and to actually stop and, and take a deep breath and assess and go, no, this is what I would actually love. I wouldn't, at any time you connect love to food, you know, there's potential issues concerned there. But, but to say, I love Vietnamese food, I would love it. I live in a small town. We don't have good Vietnamese restaurants. I know there are some in Portland. I'd love for you to, to take me to one of those. And so many of us operate like that. We, we're actually not aware of what, what we really love and what we really desire. Or if we are, we, we conceal it and we're not willing to share it. If I would have said, hey, tell me what kind of food you would really love to eat, if that would have been my opening question, he probably could have come up with, with Vietnamese food or some other kind of food, but as I'm off the cuff with no prep time, and just, I don't know, I'm good with whatever. But no, I actually would love to have this. We've been talking about the heart, and I think our, our, our hearts work a little bit that way. And one of the descriptions that we, descriptions that we gave a couple weeks ago was that um, our hearts are the chamber of love. That's where love and desire and longing come from is, is our hearts. Uh, it's, some would say, and scientists and psychologists would say, it's in, it's in our mind, that it's a chemical reaction in our mind, and there is definitely some validity to that, but, but that doesn't actually answer the human condition, does it? That's, that's satisfying. If somebody says, hey, you're in love, or you love this, or you're passionate about this, or you long for this, and, and you're to hear, oh, it's only a chemical reaction in your brain, there's something that's deeply dissatisfying to that. That doesn't fully settle or answer the way that I experience myself in this moment, what I'm really feeling. And so it's, it's much more than that. And scripture has much to say about the heart. We looked at this verse a couple weeks ago in Proverbs chapter four, uh, verse 23. Proverbs chapter four, 23 says this, above all else, above all else, guard your heart. And the reason is, is because for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Every decision you make, every way you interact with people, every word that you say, somehow is tied to what's going on in your heart. And that is both frightening and wonderful. And Jesus said in, in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse, I think it's 43, he said, from, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. For everything you do flows from your heart. We need to talk about what we mean when we say heart. Two weeks ago, we talked about why we would focus on the heart. 
that Jesus starts his revolution in our heart because everything else changes from that. It's because our desires shape us more than anything else shapes us. Our identity is in our, in our heart. But this morning, what I want us to do is to, to stop and say, do we understand what we mean when we say the heart? When we say the heart, do we, are we meaning the same thing? Do we have the right understanding of what we mean the heart? And then what I want us to do is to take a look at two guys that kind of take divergent paths. They go in two different directions. Two men in scripture who take divergent paths and one follows God's heart and one does not. What is the heart? Uh, we, again, last week, uh, two weeks ago, we said it's the, kind of our core identity. Um, it's, that's who we are. It's, it's, it's not the organ. We've got a, we've got a uh, wonderful artwork there that's, that's depicting an organ. And I, in case you didn't know this, we're not talking about the organ of the heart. We're not gathering in a church and looking to scripture to talk about an organ for a couple months together. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's our very core identity of who we really are. Is, is in our heart. As the ancient writers wrote in scripture about it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't just the, the thinking aspect or the feeling aspect. It was underneath both of those. It was at the, the core that was most important of, of who we are. And it's it talked about our desires and our longings are generated from within our heart. And we said all that a couple weeks ago. And I want to add another couple descriptions for us that's really important that we understand. When we say the heart, this is what we're talking about. And one is this. It's, it, it's like our executive center. And what I mean by that is that our heart is our executive center, that everything that we do and decide comes through our heart, is generated from our heart. When scripture talks about the heart, this is what it's talking about. It's not just some aspect that is consulted or, or a factor in it, it's the very core of it. Uh, another word would be maybe more familiar to us is it's our will. It's our will. Our heart is our will. When we make a decision, a choice, that is from our heart. It's not just our mind. We'd like to think it is at sometimes, and maybe that would be more simple. But ultimately, we all understand and know that it, our will is more than just what we're thinking, that we make decisions faster than we can even think at times. The, the, the heart is the executive center. It's the will. And so when scripture talks about heart or spirit or will, it's all talking about the same thing. And this is why it's so important. And this is why Jesus begins with our heart and is so concerned about our heart and says, above all else, guard your heart because everything we do flows from it. Our will is part of our heart. Every decision that we make, every choice that we make. When we make a decision or choice and we act in some way, what we're doing is we're exerting power. Now, you may have a lot of power. You might not have very much power at all. But when you make a choice and decide for you as a person, as an individual, as a human being, you're exerting power. And Jesus has something to say about how we do that, how we choose and decide and live in this world. And so he wants to capture our hearts first and foremost. There's an ancient writer um, who had quite a life. Um, he was born in, in North Africa and uh, uh, to... His, his parents cared deeply about his education. Uh, he was trained from a very early age, and, and his parents aspired that he would rise to levels of uh, academia and influence. And, the, and he, he moved from North Africa to, as a young adult to uh, Italy uh, to pursue positions in Rome and, and rose in positions in Rome of academic, and he was an orator, and, and eventually moved to Milan. And he was on this quest, and much of his life was spent running from God because his parents believed in God and followed Jesus, but he, he didn't want any part of that for much of his life. And as an intellectual and as an educated and influential and talented man, he experienced all kinds of pleasure and enjoyment 
and fulfilled many of his aspirations and accomplished great things, but yet he was on this pursuit to answer these questions that he just couldn't find answers to. And eventually he came to the place where he found the end of himself and he couldn't find any more answers and the people around him that were influencing him, he looked to them and, and they eventually pointed him to Jesus and he, he surrendered his, he would say, heart to Jesus eventually in adulthood and wrote extensively about his journey and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and returned to North Africa as a bishop, as a pastor, as a theologian and wrote for the rest of his life. His name is St. Augustine of Hippo. He lived from uh, 354 AD to 430. And one of the statements that he wrote that maybe you've heard this before and didn't know it was him or maybe you know it's exactly him, but he says, talking to God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And there's this great painting of him where this illustrates this, this quote, that that's St. Augustine uh, of Hippo and he's, he's holding a heart. I mean, it's a painting. But his heart is on fire and he's looking up. That's to represent God, the light in the, the top right corner there. I guess that's the left corner. And that his heart is, is longing for God. Because you and I have the personal power to make decisions and choices that we do thousands of times every day, that we exert that power in our lives and the ones that we are in our sphere and around us, that we can't help but have a purpose. We can't help but make a difference. We can't help but be influential in some way. It could be for good. It could be for evil. It could be for great significance. It could be fairly insignificant. But we have power and we have purpose. And what Augustine says is that our purpose is to be connected to the one who made us. That God has made us, me and you, for himself. He's created us. And by doing so, he's created us with intention and purpose and meaning. And wherever we go with that, and wherever we try to find that satisfied and fulfilled, if it's not primarily and first and foremost connected to God. Augustine would say we find ourselves restless. Today, many of us would say we find ourselves anxious until we find peace with God, until we find rest in God. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the very core of who we are, our identity, our executive center, where our will exercises personal power to make decisions and choices and God has so much to say about that. And he wants to begin with our hearts to transform us into the women and men that he's designed and created us to be. I want us today to look at two different men that take divergent paths. And again, one follows God's heart and, and one does not. I want to I read a, a, just a, a simple line from, uh, that describes both of them in the New Testament, and then I want us to back up into the Old Testament and, and, and read a little bit of their narrative and their story. Uh, but in the New Testament, we, we find uh, the Apostle Paul is giving a defense of the story of God, and in telling the story, he mentions these two men. And as Apostle Paul is, is, is defending the story of God and who God is, and he's leading up to Jesus and what Jesus has done and, and being crucified on the cross and being buried and conquering death and rising again, that, that what we call the good news, the gospel, he he, tells, he mentioned these two men in, in the story, and, and he says this, uh, chapter 13 of the book of Acts, verse 22. And again, long, just going through the narrative of God's story. After removing Saul, who was a king, after removing Saul, first man, he made David, man number two, their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He will do everything I want him to do. He's a man after my own heart, and, and so he, he follows what I want him to do. 
Here's our two men, Saul and, and David. Uh, they're both kings of, of Israel. Uh, they're, they're not king at the same time. Uh, David follows Saul. Saul's the first king. If you don't know any of the story, most of it's contained in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel books in the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Israel want a king, and, and God allows them to have a king, and it's, it's Saul. And Saul has a lot of qualifications that look, look at that day and age as, as like a king. It says that he stands head and shoulders above the rest of his peers, that he's effective on the battlefield, that he's quite a warrior, that he's killed and conquered people. And so, hey, natural, let's, let's make him our king. And so God allows them to make him king. And there's a prophet that is the voice piece of God uh, in, in the nation at that time. And, and Saul is an anointed king and, and, and made king. And, and then one of the things you do when you're king is you, uh, you, you make an army. You, you pull together an army. And so Saul pulls together an army and he, he gets 3,000 men and he takes 2,000 of them. And then he gives 1,000 of them to his son, Jonathan. And they kind of set up and make sure that they're securing their land and, and looking out at other land that they might want to conquer and, and add to their nation. So he's got 3,000 men, 2,000 here, 1,000 there. His son, Jonathan, goes off and takes his 1,000 men, and um, they find an outpost of the Philistines. And if you don't know anything about the Philistines, that's fine for, for our story at this piece. They're basically just going to be the bad guys. But Jonathan ends up not being a great guy either. He goes to their outpost of the Philistine with his 1,000 men, and he just kind of messes with them. Kills some of them, kind of takes it over, messes with them. Philistines, as you can imagine, if that was you and your outpost got attacked, you would not like that. And so they call up the chain of command and say, hey, we just got attacked. And so the Philistine army mobilizes and goes to a place called Michmash, which if you're mobilizing an army, there's, I mean, that's a pretty great place to do it. We're going to mobilize at Michmash. And so they're mobilizing at Michmash, and, and uh, Saul gets word that this is all going on and, and hears the army and sees the army. And, get, and he's got 2,000 men. And it says in, in 1 Samuel uh, 12 or 13, it says that they've got 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. So apparently every chariot has two guys in it. And that's not even the rest of their army and, and horses and, and weapons and all that. So they're way out, man. Saul is like, my son Jonathan really didn't do a, a, great, a great one here. And he's now caused this army to be mobilized against me. He's got 2,000 men. And so he's, got, he's ready to defend his land against the Philistines. But but before he's going to do that, he knows that they need to have this basically like a worship service where they sacrifice and make an offering to God so that God will go with them into battle and hopefully protect them and they'll win. They'll be the victors. In order to have a, a sacrifice and that kind of a worship service prior to going out to battle, the prophet has to come and, and perform those offerings and sacrifices. And so they've called up Samuel and Samuel's on his way. Saul is getting fearful and more and more concerned and anxious because that army is getting ready to fight. And, and it's been now seven days since Samuel's gotten here. And so he gets a little impatient, a little impatient, a little impatient. And he finally says, hey, Samuel's not here yet. We've got to go to war. I'm going to step in in his place. And I'm going to perform the sacrifices and the rituals and the, and the burnt offerings and the little worship service and pray to God. And then we're going to be ready to go. Now, if you're watching that in a TV show, what happens as soon as he finishes the, the sacrifices? Samuel shows up. I this is Samuel's job. I've stepped in. Now, for most of us, we hear that. And we're like, well, yeah, like you gave him seven days. Like, guys, you got to go to, you go to battle. You're, you're anxious. You're fearful. That makes total sense that you take it in your own hands and, and do it. Well, Samuel then shows up, and that's not how Samuel sees it. Samuel says this. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter, chapter 13, verse 13, he says this to Saul. This is, this is his kind of, Saul, you've done a foolish thing. Oh, blasted. That's not in the text, but uh, Samuel says, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, 
if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Shoot, just missed out on that. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul knew full well what, the, what the, let's say this, the line in the sand was. There are verse upon verse and chapter upon chapter and book upon book in the Old Testament describing how they are to worship and acknowledge how good and powerful God is. And it was very specific. And Saul knew full well he was not the one to be able to do that, that that was Samuel's job. What he wasn't willing to do was to trust that if Samuel wasn't there yet, that God was still in control and overseeing all this. And so he stepped in and broke God's command and disobeyed. And so he has this really, what sounds like us for us, a pretty strong judgment of you don't have a heart after God because you disobeyed. Samuel shows up, they have a conversation. They end up winning the battle. Uh, Saul's rule goes on. He rules, ends up ruling for 42 years. Um, later on, uh, God gives him other instructions, Saul, to, to conquer some other bad guys and to wipe them out completely. And instead of doing that, what, what Saul does is that he, he knocks out almost all of them, but takes the king and keeps the king alive. He takes some of their best cattle and, and animals, and instead of wiping them all out, he keeps some of them for him and his troops. And when confronted about it, uh, Samuel says, why have you done this and not obeyed the, the Lord again? And he goes, well, you know, hey, hold on here, Samuel. It's kind of good to keep his king around, you know? Like, look at him. It's kind of fun to, to have him in prison. And then he kind of looks at the animals. He said, hey, the animals were actually for, for sacrifice. Isn't that a great idea? Some of the best animals sacrifice. He comes up with all these excuses and starts making excuses. And eventually, Samuel says this to him in uh, chapter 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now, if you're just to stop there and just to hear that, does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifices? It would make sense to say yes, because there's a whole lot of scriptures describing how that's to be done. So it seems like God cares about that a lot. But the back half of the rhetorical question is this, as much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Samuel is saying to Saul, you've disobeyed God again. You've listened to him and you've made your own excuses to go your own way and to not follow what God said. You've rewritten, you've retranslated. You've heard it in a different way and made up essentially your own marching orders, your own direction, and you've not followed God's. And so you don't have a heart after God's. You have your own heart. And God doesn't primarily, first and foremost, care about burnt offerings and sacrifices. He cares about your heart. He cares that you obey. He cares that your will is guided by him and not you. And in the very next chapter, we have the story of Samuel going to the house of Jesse because God says, I'm going to anoint another king for the future and he's going to be a man after my own heart. And Jesse, when Samuel gets to Jesse's house, he says, hey, God sent me to anoint one of your sons as the next king. And he goes, well, it's probably my oldest son. And he looks at him and God says no and he looks down the road and he ends up going through seven sons and he hears no, no, no. And in verse seven of chapter 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The oldest son is probably the tallest. I've rejected him. He's not the one I'm choosing. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. The Lord looks at 
The people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But the Lord looks at the heart. This both encourages me and frightens me a little bit. It encourages me that that God doesn't just look at the outward appearance. I wish I was taller. I wish I was stronger. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was, I don't know, a hundred different things of what appears of me on the outside, of what you see, of what I see when I look in the mirror. I'm glad that God doesn't just look at my outside, doesn't just see the outward appearance, doesn't just see who I am in everybody else's eyes and even my own eyes at times. I'm really glad for that. But then it's very sobering to know that he looks beyond that onto the inside of who I, who I really am. Because there's times when I'm not really comfortable with that. That if he could see into my heart and he knows all of my motivations, he knows all my desires, I don't know that I'm proud of all of those things. But God can look through and, and see my heart and he does the same for each and every one of us. That he knows you. That he knows what's going on. He knows your desires. He knows your longings. And he looks at David and he says, David is a man after God's own heart. And if you know anything about David, David has all these successes and all these ways that he's, his heart pursues God and he obeys God and he does all the things that God's called him to do. And he has these great ways that he worships and obeys God. And then he has these horrendous failures of where he's done things that are utterly evil and horrible. That he kills Uriah because he's having an affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba who had no choice in the matter. And so murder and, and adultery and decimates that, that marriage and, and family. And then he's confronted by it, by a prophet that shows up later in the life of Israel named Nathan. And Nathan comes and confronts David. And David, after putting up wall after wall of defense, of excuse, of debate, finally breaks down and says, yes, that was wrong. And he writes these words. He writes these words in Psalm 51, which is a beautiful and brutal poem of confession and repentance from David to God. And in verse 10, it says this, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Heart, spirit, will. God, I... I, I don't have this on my own. I need you to actually make in me a clean heart, a pure heart. I don't have one on my own. I can't figure this out. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. David had, in many ways, a great record as a king. In many ways, he was described as a man after God's own heart, and yet when he sinned and did evil and horrendous things, it takes a while, but he comes back and he says, I was wrong, and he comes with a broken heart. One of the things that Saul was really good at doing was making up excuses of rationalizing and and twisting and debating and rewriting the narrative of what God was asking him to do so that it worked for him. I don't know if you have that ability. I don't know if you've ever thought about how, how much you, you rationalize or excuse or defend. Um, as I look back over my life, particularly as a, 
as a parent, I, I realize that I have this like finely tuned capacity and skill to make excuses for what I've done and said. Like, like graduate level type stuff, like near superhero power ability to defend myself and, and excuse. We were on vacation one time and we're over at a friend's house and we've got the boys there and my adult sons were, were just young kids at the time and, uh, and it was you know, several days into a, a week-long stay there and, and I was tired and they was late and we had pushed bedtime a little bit because it's vacation and it was time to get your pajamas on and get ready for bed and, and, and if you don't have kids, you don't know what that's like, but it's just kind of like you just begin to, to, all boundaries on vacation start to disappear and you forget what, what, what rhythms are and, and rules and those kind of things. And so I had, I had compromised and compromised and let it go and let it go. Now it got really late and I, wanted, I want the kids to be in bed. I want to have fun at night and them, them to be in, in bed and us to hang out with our friends. And, and I lost my patience and I ended up snapping at them and yelling at them, embarrassing them and found out later embarrassing my wife and found out even later that I was embarrassing myself. And I said something with complete, you know, clear conscience and conviction, like you will never eat another bite or see sunlight again if you don't get in bed. I mean, it got to that kind of a level and, and, uh, and fortunately, um, just by the grace of God, Abby and I have never split, you know, in front of, in front of the kids, split on our discipline plan or, 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 or rules. She's been gracious enough to do that behind closed doors when I've needed it. And, and so she let me finish out the night and get them in bed and then uh, notified me later on in our room um, what I had actually done and said. And I began building this wall up of, nope, nope, I was right, I was justified. Do you realize how late it was? Do you realize how many times I had told them and they had not obeyed and built it all up and it was just strong and perfect and great. We went to bed and I woke up the next morning realizing what a fool I had been. And I don't know that I was quite all the way to contrite and broken, but I was at least cracked and humbled. And then had to apologize to her and apologize to my sons and ask for forgiveness and, and be humbled and be broken. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to hide from God, thinking he can't see our hearts, and then building up great walls and defenses of why we're doing what we get to do and, and why we want to resist coming back to this, 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 this flavor, this kind of almost visceral confession of, gosh, God, I was wrong. Forgive me. Start me anew. Put something new in me because this one's not working. And over and over and over, we have a God who is gracious and forgiving and merciful and says, return to me, return to me, return to me. And what this is, is, is this confession that ultimately says, I don't delight in sacrifice and burnt offerings. Let me, let me say it a little bit. I don't delight in what you can do if I don't have your heart. I want you to obey me because I have your heart, because your will is, is in my hands. And the truth is, is that God cares far more about our heart than what we do. God cares more about our heart than what we do. And when we get that twisted and when we get that mixed up, what happens is our view of God begins to get convoluted and inaccurate and faulty. God cares more about our heart than what we do. He cares deeply about what we do, but only because he cares about us. 
And when we are willing to surrender our will to him and say, God, you can have my heart. Direct me, heal me, convict me, comfort me, and then we'll go somewhere together. But I want to be with you, and I want you to have my heart. That's the difference between David and Saul. Saul kept the defenses up till his dying day. And David said, I'm on my knees crying out, create in me a clean and pure heart. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, as a theologian and, and, and pastor and, and uh, an author, the heart is the rudder of the soul. Again, think back to Proverbs 4.23. Everything we do comes from our heart. The heart is the rudder of the soul. Until the Lord takes it in hand, we steer in a fa- false and foul way. And so I want to invite you this, this morning to, to actually pray the prayer, Jesus, have my heart. Jesus, have my heart. I can't tell you what comes next after that. That prayer initiates a conversation and a posture that allows God to begin to work in us in new and mysterious and uncharted ways. To say, Jesus, have my heart. Not the outward appearance, that'll come later. But what you care about most is is what's going on inside of me. And so I I wanna pray with us today and invite you as you're ready to come to these tables. And as you come, if you would pray that, Jesus, have my heart to do with as you need to, to heal, to forgive, to strengthen, to empower, to direct, that you would have my heart. And we're gonna come to these tables. There's one in the middle and there's two up front. There's two in the balcony. As we continue to sing, I'm gonna invite you to to pray that. And and the truth is, is that God's gonna take each and every one of us in different directions if, if we're willing to pray that. And that might be really scary and that might be the the news you needed to hear today. Jesus, as we pray this, we ask for your help and your power and your strength and your, more than anything else, your presence. Would you be with us? That would we have a sense as David said, David prayed, don't let your presence go from me, that that we know deep in our bones, in our soul, into our heart, that you are with us, that you're here, that you don't run away. That whatever we bring, whatever has gone on in our past, whatever place that we find ourselves in right now, that we would say, Jesus, have my heart. Stay with me and make it new. And as we come to your table this morning, Jesus, would we have a, a deep and real sense that you're here with us, that you've given your body and your blood for us to be in relationship with you, fully forgiven and restored and walking forward in the life that you're calling us into. And so Jesus, we come as we sing, as we come to these tables and we say, have our hearts.